Welcome to Crossroads. It's so glad that you're all here today. And uh, if you're here in the room, you're out in the atrium, you're joining us on our online campus, we're so, so glad that you've joined us today. Now, maybe you'll indulge me for just a moment of family news. Um, as many of you know, my son and daughter-in-law had triplets born this last August. They were a pound and 12 ounces. Well, today, they're actually here. They're right over there. I don't know if we got this picture up or not. I really sprung it on them. There they are, right over there. Lila, not Lila, Cora, Ivy, and Stella are sitting right over there. And uh, thank you for, this is their first day at church. So you can look, don't touch. I'm the papa after all. We're gonna get that picture up or not. Maybe we're not. That's all right. You can uh, meet him afterwards. Well, have any of you ever ridden in a hot air balloon? Any of you? Yeah, well, I, I read a story about a pastor who took his wife and a couple they didn't know on their very first hot air balloon ride. And uh, they met each other in a field, introduced themselves, told what they did for a living, and then began to ascend up in the air. And as they went up, it was... An exquisite view, he said. But the higher he rose, he said, I began to experience a feeling I hadn't quite anticipated. Care to guess? Fear. His heart was pounding. His palms were sweating. He had a stranglehold on the ropes. He said, I was the, thought I was the most frightened one in the basket till I looked over at my wife. And he said, I thought, well, maybe I should get to know the guy flying the balloon. So he asked him, uh, besides flying balloons, what do you do for a living? Thinking that maybe he would say neurosurgeon or former astronaut. He knew they were in trouble when he began with, well, it's like this, dude. I don't really work, I mostly surf. And I got into hot air ballooning because I got drunk and crashed my pickup and injured my brother. And he loves, while he's recovering, he loves to watch hot air balloons. He said, and he said, if it gets a little bumpy on the way down, it's because I've never flown this kind of balloon before. <laughs> so his wife looks over at him and says, you mean to tell me that we're a thousand feet up in the air with an unemployed surfer who got drunk, crashed his pickup truck, crippled his brother, has never flown a balloon like this and is not sure, quite sure how we're gonna get down? The wife of the other couple who hadn't said a thing up to this point turned to him and said, you're a pastor, do something religious. <laughs> he said, so I did, I took an offering. <laughs> we live on a giant hot air, on a giant balloon called Earth. And we're floating around in the universe. And we get one trip and we want to get as much out of it as possible. And I know that the ride can be very uncertain and risky at times. And cultivating a positive mental attitude can help. But the real question we ask ourselves is, who's in charge of this thing? Who's flying? Who's in charge? Who's, in, who's running the show? And even though many of us would say, yes, I trust God. I have faith. I believe in his ability to run the world. Yet when we begin to live out this adventure and begin putting into pr practice some of the directives for our lives, 
it's often accompanied by some feelings and some things we never expected. And that's why I'm drawn to the story of Peter in a boat one night with 11 friends, one very scary night. It's a story about faith and fear, about risk and failure. And there are three realities about the life of faith that this story brings out. And here's the first one. The life of faith always involves the probability of fear. Let me read part of the story. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. It's been a fairly intense couple of days prior to this incident. They'd buried a longtime friend named John the Baptizer. They'd fed fish and chips to thousands of people and they were exhausted. So Jesus says, you go out in the boat and I'm gonna go up on the mountain to pray. And the disciples aren't scared. They've been in boats before. They're professionals. But this time was different. A storm blew in that was so rough They couldn't make any headway at all. And then it says, in the middle of the night, the fourth watch, which is between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus comes to them walking on the water. I mean, picture the scene. The wind is howling. The, The waves are crashing and frothing and boiling. And the disciples are taking turns pulling at those oars, but they are not making any headway. Matthew says that the little boat was tormented by the waves. They're chilled to the bone, exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally. They're scared. It's dark. It's the middle of the night. They have no idea where they are. They feel like they're riding on a toothpick in a washing machine. These are the conditions in which faith is often forged. There are also the conditions where fear is often foremost. And this aspect of following Christ, that is, it's this, that's very uncomfortable. And maybe you've noticed this. Whenever we begin to move out into the life of faith, to put down our roots, to expand our relationship with God, fear is often an inseparable part of the journey. It just works this way. And there are two ways that we can view this scene. One is through the eyes of fear, and the other is through the eyes of faith. Through the eyes of fear, this is one terrifying problem. Through the eyes of faith, this is one terrifying adventure. Through the eyes of fear, only what is human is possible. Through the eyes of faith with God, new things are possible. And this storm isn't the only time they experience fear. Jesus comes walking to him on the water, more fear. Peter gets out of the boat eventually, walks on the water for a few steps, sees the waves, more fear, more fear. And with each new wave, we can choose to view it through the eyes of fear or through the eyes of faith. Maybe you've noticed this about your life. Storms happen. You get a call, you get a text message. Text message says, We're on our way to the ER. We'll meet you there. You get a call from your son. Uh, I just got picked up. 
Can you come bail me out? Your good friend at school completely disassociates with you, ignores you. Your boss calls you into her office, shuts the door, and tells you it's time for you to, well, let's see, uh, explore other opportunities, vocational opportunities. You feel a lump. Biopsy comes back. It's cancer. You have a stack of bills on your table that you just cannot pay. You're really good at what you do at work. In fact, so good, people keep asking you more and more and more of you, and now it's a storm. And the question, uh, storms blow in unexpectedly, randomly, powerfully, and we do everything we know how to do. And the storm just keeps on raging. It's exhausting. It's scary. It creates fear. You find yourself sitting at the kitchen table with your head in your hands. Have you ever had a year where you feel like you've had enough storms to last for 10? Me too. Me too. And the question we all ask at times like this is, what's going to happen to me? To us. And we react with either fear or faith and sometimes both. And the life of faith always involves fear. That's not going to change. But what can change is how we respond when we begin to feel fearful. Will we view our predicament through the eyes of fear or through the eyes of faith? Is this merely a giant problem with only human solutions? Or is there something I don't see yet where God is involved and I can anticipate his involvement? That's the first reality. Here's the second one. The life of faith always involves the possibility of failure. Let me read more of the story. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I, take heart. It's me, it is me. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? It'd be hard enough for Peter to do what he did on a calm lake. Let alone when I was pitching and raging, it's three in the morning and it's pitch black. This is Peter at his absolute gutsiest best, isn't it? This is his idea. Lord, if it's you, it could be translated, Lord, since it's you, call me out there. Peter's already beginning to get the idea that the safest place in a storm is to get as close to Jesus as possible. And if, is that what, if you were there, is that what you would have asked for? Not me. I probably would have said, Lord, if it's you, Stop the storm. Do something to this about the storm. Or Lord, if it's you, turn my boat into an aircraft carrier. Then no storm could buffet me. I'll feel safe and warm and dry and it won't matter what storms there are. Or Lord, if it's you, pick me up and put me back on land. Put me in a safe place. How many of our prayers are dominated 
by asking God to change our circumstances, something out there. Those are not prayers of would-be water walkers. They are prayers motivated by fear, not faith. Peter is beginning to understand that there is a completely new level of living available through Jesus. And I think it begins to dawn on Peter that the real life, the life of adventure and risk and faith will never be found doing things the way they've always been done. Expecting God to answer prayers the way he's always answered prayers. Living the lives we've always lived and never getting out of the boat, even though at the moment staying in the boat seems like the most sane thing to do. Which is really bad news for most of us because we're into comfort. I don't think I'm alone in my desire for comfort and ease. What's the name of one of the leading furniture manufacturers in the United States? Lazy Boy. Because we want to immerse ourselves in comfort. It's not risky boy. It's not worker boy. Lazy boy. We've developed a whole new language around this experience. We don't call it, I'm going home to relax. We say, I'm going home to veg out. To make myself as much like plant life as possible. In front of a device or a TV. And those people who do that and sit on the couch, we call couch potatoes, vegging out in front of our TVs. That's a picture. The truth is, when we step out of the boat, it's uncomfortable and we may fail. We apply for the promotion and get it. We ask that person out. We take that person to the dance. We sign up to lead something. We sign up to volunteer and serve. And whenever we do that, we run the risk that it might not work out. But when we, if we don't take the risk, we may never, ever have the sense of walking on the water. Jesus hears Peter's request. And I think Jesus just has this big old smile on his face, don't you? Peter, come ahead. Can you imagine that moment? So Peter slings one foot over the side of the boat, then the other, then he lets go, and he's standing there, and he begins to walk out on the water. And for a few moments, the only time in human history, a normal human being is walking on the water. What a moment. It's just Peter and Jesus out there walking on the water. And I thought as a fisherman, that would be quite a skill to have. <laughs> just walk right out on the river, find the best pools, just boom, wow. For one pure, exhilarating moment. And then Peter starts to look around, sees the waves, and goes down. And here's the question. Did Peter fail? Did he fail? The text radically redefines failure for a follower of Christ. Failure is not so much an event as the interpretation, the label, or the judgment of an event. Jonas Salk attempted 200 unsuccessful vaccines for polio until he finally arrived at one that worked. And people said to him, Jonas, what did it feel like to fail 200 times? 
And he said, I didn't fail 200 times. My parents taught me never to use the word failure. I just discovered 200 ways not to make the polio vaccine. Three of the best-selling books in the last couple of centuries were rejected by publishers over and over. Anybody ever hear of Harry Potter? Rejected, first book by 12 publishers. Robert Hooker's book, MASH, rejected by 21 publishers. Here's this one, the record setter. And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. Who wrote that? Dr. Seuss, his first book, rejected by a whopping 23 publishers. Did all those authors fail? No, actually the publishers did. They're all scratching their heads going, why didn't we say yes to that one? Did Peter fail? Yes, in one sense, he did. His faith gave way. But there were 11 bigger failures that never got out of the boat. Peter failed publicly. They failed secretly, privately, quietly, unnoticed, and uncriticized. They didn't want to run the risk to experience fear, to subject themselves to the positive failure, so they just vegged out in their lazy boat. You could call them boat potatoes. Well, there's a little boat potato in all of us. David has been a home builder all of his life. He's longed to help people build homes that couldn't afford a home. But he has so many deadlines and so many projects and so many contracts and so many bills, he just never quite gets around to it. Jennifer's been involved in a relationship with a man for years, the kind of the quiet, stoic type. She wants commitment. She wants her career. She wants marriage. She wants children. But he doesn't. And so she just sits in her boat year after year. Nancy grew, or Doug's boat is his secrecy. He has a secret habit that no one knows about but him. And rather than face his addiction, he just pushes down the guilt. And every year he's in his little boat, he just gets more and more numb. Nancy grew up with a very demanding father. His expectations of her were always two rungs higher on the ladder than she could manage to accomplish. She was always two rungs short on her choices, on her report card, on her attractiveness, on her choice of a husband. She's exhausted by trying to climb her father's ladder. And rather than face and the possibility of torpedoing her relationship, she just sits in her boat. The truth is, if we're gonna get out of the boat, we need to realize fear is always gonna accompany us and that faith will always be a risk, and with that comes the possibility of failure, which brings us to the third reality of the story. If we want to live the life of faith, we've got to get out of the boat. And when we do this, when we push off from the many things that are safe and predictable and cozy and habitual, and move out into the deep, scary water, the power of God is put into play in ways we could not even imagine. Matthew 14, Then those who were in the boat, this is after the scene, worshiped him, worshiped Jesus saying, truly, you are the son of God. People begin to see and experience the power of God in ways they never imagined. Peter went down, yes. But for a few glorious moments, he walked on the water. 
an experience he would never forget. In fact, I look forward to asking Peter, what was that like? What was that like? But when people get out of the boat, amazing things can begin to happen. Let me tell you about Bob, who lives and works in Washington, D.C., was an insurance salesman who became a Christian primarily through his relationship with Doug. And so Bob said to Doug, will you teach me how to do this Christian thing? So Doug said, sure. One of the first things I want you to learn is how to pray. So he shared with them some scriptures about prayer. And one of them is, whatever you ask in Jesus' name, Jesus will do something. Now, Bob thought that was cool. But Doug said, you have to have some spiritual sense about what you ask for here. And so one evening, uh, they began to make this deal. So Doug said to Bob, I want you to pray about something for a whole month. So Bob says, okay, I'll pray for a country, Africa. Doug says, narrow it down. So he said, Kenya. So Doug says, do you know anything about Kenya? No, no, no. Okay, so here's the deal. Kind of unusual. Doug says, you pray about Kenya every single day for a month. And if nothing supernatural happens, I'll pay you $500 in the, the month. But he said, if something supernatural does happen, then you pay me. But you have to pray every day or the deal's off. So Bob begins to pray. And it was getting near the end of the month. And he goes to this dinner party where there are a bunch of people he didn't know. And as people were introducing themselves around the room, this woman says, hey, I help run a big orphanage in the country of Kenya. And so Bob begins to pepper her with questions. And she said, why are you so interested in, Ken in this Kenyan orphanage? He said, well, I kind of hate to tell you, but somebody's paying me 500 bucks to pray. <laughs> and so she said, well, why don't you come to Kenya and look at the orphanage? So he did. He flew to Kenya and he was so touched and moved by what he saw. And I've been to some of these orphanages in Kenya. They're stretched thin, very, poor, very meagerly resourced. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of love there. And so Bob visits, comes back home, and he begins calling pharmaceutical companies and telling them about the need in Kenya. He, he got together a million dollars worth of medical supplies and had them flown to Kenya. A few weeks later, he gets a call from the lady at the orphanage. Can you come back to Kenya? We're having a party to celebrate this amazing gift. So he goes, he flies for the party. And guess who's at the party? The president of Kenya is at the party and meets Bob. And he says, can I show you around town, the capital city, Nairobi? So he says, sure. So as they're driving around, they drive by this big, heavily guarded prison. And Bob asks the president, who's in there? The president says, it's mostly political prisoners. And Bob says, that's not a good idea. You should let them go. A few days later, Bob flies home. 2 a.m. in the morning, he gets a phone call from the United States State Department. Is this Bob? Yeah. Were you recently on a trip in Kenya? Yeah. Uh, did you uh, meet with the president and say something about the prisons? Uh, I did. What did you say? I told him it was a bad idea and he ought to let him go. And the State Department official said, well, we just called to say thank you. We've been trying to get these prisoners released for years. All diplomatic channels have failed. But because of what you said, they've just released many of those prisoners and we just called to say thank you. A few months later, he gets another phone call. It's the president of Kenya. 
Can you come to Kenya? I'm about to pick and select a brand new cabinet and I'd like you to be in the country, in the town, praying for us for three days before I make that selection. Now that's what can happen when we step out of our little boat. The power of God is released and channeled in ways that we can only begin to imagine. Imagine our church, our community, if everyone who says they're a follower of Christ would say to Jesus, just say the word and I'll come to you, whatever that word is. And when we do, we're gonna face fear and failure, we are. And so the question for us today is what is your boat? What is it? Maybe you've never surrendered your life completely to the leadership of Jesus. You're going, you know what? I don't know if I could trust you. Or maybe your boat is a relationship. It's stale, it's stuck, it's stagnant, but you're just afraid to do something. Maybe it's your job. You're on autopilot, just face it. You're just kind of putting in your time. It's not demanding much from you. You're not, you're not bringing much to it. Maybe it's a talent. You have this hunch, maybe from God, that you have this talent. But you know that if you begin to put it into play, especially at the beginning, there could be a lot of failure. You might not do it very well. You won't, I'll just tell you, you won't do it very well to begin with. So rather than risk it, you just hold it. Maybe you have a distorted image of yourself. You think of yourself as not worth much. And all this water walking is for heavyweight spiritual people, but you consider yourself a lightweight. And you never sat down with a pastor or a counselor or a spiritual guide to begin to realize the value that you have. Maybe your boat is your money. You got you got a boat, maybe you got a battleship, maybe you have an aircraft carrier, but generosity has never been a very risky thing for you. Yeah, it's safe, but haven't given in a risky way. Or maybe it's serving here. You've been sitting at crossroads in your boat and you've never stepped out and said, you know what, I wanna get involved here. Maybe uh, an opportunity coming up is project one. I'm gonna take the day, I'm gonna serve our community. May 4th, project one. Maybe it's to lead a small group. Begin to tithe or give money to the church. What's your boat? Now, I don't know what your cozy, comfortable little boat is, but I do know this. If we want to take our life to the next level, we're going to have to say goodbye to comfort and say hello to fear and understand that there's two ways to view the storm because when we move out there's going to be storms they're going to happen and we'll have an opportunity to go am I going to view this through the eyes of fear or through the eyes of faith we're going to do that and so where are you today in your boat and there's four options and here they are are you huddling a boat with a life preserver and seat belt on you have one leg in one leg out or third option, I'm out of the boat, but I'm looking at the wind and the waves and it's kind of scary out here. Number four, I'm out, it's scary, there's a storm, 
but Jesus is with me and I'm walking on the water. And here's the truth. When we do that, we will fail. We will go down. Our faith is gonna give way. And like it did for Peter, Jesus is right there saying, hey, I'm right here. Just take my hand. Just take my hand. You can trust me. Because Jesus says, no matter how bad the storm, I will never, ever leave you. And sometimes, when we get out of the boat, we're gonna walk on the water. So the choice today is yours and mine. Safety, comfort, same-o, same-o. Risk, fear. And to know that if Jesus is out there, that is the safest place to be. So will you stand with me? And I'll say a closing prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we all have our boats and we know what they are. And it's scary, it is at times. We step out and we think you've called us to something and, and then the storm comes. And we just need to put the storm and see through the waves and realize that you're, it's where you've led us is into this. And this is the place where faith is forged. It's where fear, we can begin to respond to fear in new ways. So Jesus, thank you that you're calling us out of the boat today. We wanna come in Jesus' name, amen.